0: The following conversation with political economist Ramir Chatterjee about the crises in capitalism and the rise of fascism originally aired on March 29, 2019 on The Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role the music plays in social justice and protest, and it airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Welcome to the Radical Songbook here on 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio. We're streaming live and archived at kpov.org. Before I get too far along, I should tell you that the views and opinions expressed on the Radical Songbook are mine alone, or those of my guests, and I do have a guest today, and they do not reflect the views of the KPOV Board of Directors, KPOV staff, underwriters, sponsors, or any other DJs or volunteers, so yes indeed, welcome to the Radical Songbook. My friend Romir Chatterjee is back in the station with me, hi Romir Hi, hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Okay, good to good. be back. So, Ramirez, political economist who lives here in Bend. Uh, how long have you been here now? Five years. Five years, all right. Coming up. Ramirez, one of our local activists.
1: Well, I think one of the things that I think needs to be clarified is that capitalism as a system is prone to major crises, and that's not new. And it's largely due to private profit and self-interest and the battle between the haves and the have-nots. And as a result of these crises, war and violent social disruptions are a result at the worst of times. And at other times, the state generally intervenes to try to manage these crises through a process of probably democratic reforms, if possible. And these reforms we're pretty familiar with. They're mostly aimed at ameliorating the sort of worst features of capitalism. And you have things like Keynesianism, where the state intervenes to try to control the booms and busts, and then you have other reforms like social security, unemployment insurance, collective bargaining, state programs to assist people getting education, and in some countries socialized medicine, and all all these measures are an attempt to try to Resolve the problems of capitalism through a process of reform. But none of these reforms alter the underlying structure of capitalism, which is based on the whole notion of private profit, based on private ownership of the means of production, And not all of these reforms are successful. And sometimes, in fact, they are attacked and reversed. And the crises of capitalism continue. So, when we talk about fascism as a sort of response, in my view, it's a response to Situations where there are crises of major f- proportions and violence and state efforts to sort of ameliorate crises fail and violent solutions become more likely.
0: So... um so let's go back in time to uh, the '30s here in the U.S. or in the, in the world, uh, where of course people, I think most of our listeners recognize there was the Great Depression in the '30s when Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president, and at the same time, in the U.N. other parts of the world, including Italy and and, and Germany and Spain, there was the ra- rise of fascism. Both the rise the rise of fascism in those three European countries. Um, was a response to the economic crises. That as you're talking about it was and and FDR's reforms were a response. FDR, I think, uh well FDR basically saw Franklin Delano Roosevelt basically saw capitalism in crises and in a sense endangered because there was a pretty pretty strong left movement in our country at that time. Um certainly stronger than what we have today in terms of people specifically talking about socialism the the there were people that were member members of various communist and socialist organizations that had uh were um uh influenced by the by the russian revolution in 1917 and were moving forward and so fdr felt the need to in order to to, pr- to preserve capitalism to institute some of the reforms that you spoke of. And those reforms are not necessarily bad, right? I mean, Social Security's not a bad idea. No. Uh, And so it's not that the reform, that all the unemployment insurance certainly is not a bad idea, you know, making it easier for collective bargaining to take place. I wish we had more of that now, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> uh, we had some setbacks. But, but you know, my point, I guess, is that historically we can, we have a situation where we can look at that period of time and see that, in a sense, you go two different ways. You go the route of the Soviet Union and toward socialism, or you can go toward fascism, or you're in, in the middle. And we, I guess the US was kind of, FDR was kind of there in the middle.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, Of course, his, uh, it wasn't just in this country, but more or less in most advanced capitalist countries by the, especially in the post-war period, certain types of state programs became institutionalized and accepted and as part and parcel of the effort to manage a a capitalist system that was prone to ups and downs. So, uh, yeah, I think it became sort of the accepted view was that the class struggle was dead. Right. (laughs) And uh, that capitalism had found a way of resolving the internal problems that, that it had. And uh, so, the question then is, you know, where are we now, today, and how far have we come, and is the effort to sort of smooth out the ups and downs of capitalism and try to resolve the contradictions that exist whether that effort has succeeded or or whether it's failed or failing. And if it's failing, does that help us understand some of the rise of right-wing movements today, which are in many ways similar to the fascism that we saw at the end of the First World War leading up to the Second World War?
0: So would you say that any of the things that we see today, or anywhere in the world, are, um, are fascist or close to fascism? Closer to fascism, I guess.
1: I think uh, my own view is that, first of all, that the problems of capitalism are very much still with us, that it is still prone to a lot of ups and downs, and the effort to smooth out those ups and downs has been very problematic, and it's becoming more problematic. And that, in fact, some of the right-wing responses today are very much similar in many ways to the response that occurred in the 30s and early between the wars, Uh, the sort of classical period of fascism, if you'd like to call it that. And uh, the question is, is that where we are now? Are we really in a crisis situation that could result in fascism uh, full-blown in the sense that liberal reforms are set aside and dictatorial approaches to government become the norm it certainly seems that way sometimes if you look at the world around us
0: yeah absolutely um what's his name the new leader in uh, bolsonaro is that how you pronounce it bolsonaro his name? yeah yeah i mean in in, yeah, in uh, venezuela you yeah, mean? yeah. Mm-hmm. i mean he no in brazil oh in brazil I'm yeah, sorry. yeah 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 yeah, of yeah in brazil um, certainly, seems to me to have what I would call certainly authoritarian tendencies, you know. But but you know, leaning leaning toward uh, fascism. I mean, basically uh, on on all kinds of cultural levels. If nothing you know, if nothing else, yeah, you know?
1: sure, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> you see it all over now. I mean, it's remarkable how many places. The right-wing movements have blossomed in the last eight or nine years. Europe, even parts of Asia, Uh, India certainly is going through its set of problems with the right, uh, very militant and organized, Uh, and, of course, the Philippines. So you have a lot of similarities and i think that all reflects some of the problems of capitalism both globally and at the national level
0: uh this is the radical songbook i'm your host michael Funky. my friend ramir chatterjee is here in the station and we're talking about uh the crises in capitalism so yeah we were talking about before uh while the music was playing we were talking about some conversations that i had with uh some, some friends while I was down in the bay area and and how they were really wide ranging uh, uh of people who are pretty much uh progressive progressive minded they are all progressive minded ranging from at one point I was talking to one friend of mine down there and I said, well so what do you think what what would happen? what would we do if uh Donald Trump loses the election and refuses to uh to leave office uh, that would be a real crisis and and his response was well, how do you know there's even going to be an election in 2020, <laughs> know, which is like raises yeah. a whole other issue right to that? There's that. And then on the other side, you know, I had many conversations with with friends who are just, you know, said, no, none of that can ever happen. We're not that far. Re- you know, we're not that far removed from from being able to maintain, retain. The democratic values of this country—I guess I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here—but that say, basically saying, no, no. That, that would never happen. So I don't know. I'm not suggesting that we need to debate whether or not that would happen, but that could lead us into, you know, we are we are in in uh, a major crisis worldwide and in this country that uh, leads to just leads to these kind of conversations, if nothing Absolutely.
1: else. Absolutely. I think it's it's useful to sort of s- focus on what these trends are now and what are the crises that are observable. And I think one of the most critical things that we can document and is, has been documented is that in the period after 1980 there has been an absolute explosion of inequality. And by that I mean the the gap between the haves and have-nots has absolutely exploded. And that's true at the national level and it's also true at the international level. And that, in turn, breeds a whole range of problems that we see in front of us today. If you look internationally, you see the spread of inequality has led to huge problems internally in countries all over the world. And as a result, civil war and strife and the inability to deal with the day-to-day problems of large numbers of people has led to migration and civil war, and the disruptions that co- are caused by that. You look at places like certainly the Sudan, or you look at uh, the pl- uh, Yemen, or the Middle East today. You look at places like India, the Philippines. A lot of these uh, convulsive movements that are spreading war and, and migration across national borders is a result of this growing inequality and the inability to deal with it. That's at the international level. And then you look at the national level, and the same thing applies. If you look at the United States... Since the 1980s, the spread of inequality and the concentration of wealth and income has just exploded so that the share of wealth that is owned by the very top 10% has increased. I, I think the numbers are, in the last 30 years, the top 10% share has almost quadrupled in the space of about 30 or 40 years. And so today, what does that do? It creates a great deal of insecurity. The middle class feels absolutely pressed. The working class is already struggling to make ends meet. The working poor have exploded in numbers. People even with college degrees today can't find a sustainable wage that allows them to replicate what their parents, young people today, are faced with a lot of insecurity about the future because they don't feel they can possibly get have the same opportunities that their parents had so the spread of insecurity as a result of this inequality has grown nationally as well as internationally and it explains a great deal of the rise of right-wing movements
0: and those at the very those who um, people of color in this country and essentially around the world are, are who are already heavily exploited in, in, uh, Western in Western Europe and in, and in the U S, um, bear the brunt of this more than, more than other folks, I would say. So that racism is on the rise you know, the, the, the spread of right wing policies includes a rise in racism, racist, uh, ideology, um, this, you know, immigrants, economic Im- immigrants that are a result of the inequality that you talk about that's been around, that's been growing for the past 40 years, uh, creates the fear, what I call, what, what uh, others have called the fear of the other, the, uh, the other, quote, unquote, uh, by, by white people, white people fearing these folks, that uh, you know, and, yeah. and scapegoating them and blaming them, and, and uh, which, of course, is not new in, in the world,
1: you know. Uh, well, I think if you look at what's happening in this country today, for example, the fact is that racism and the exploitation of minorities has been a fundamental part of the system, maybe from its very from the very founding fathers absolutely so the fact that Uh, blacks and people of color have been at the bottom of the economic pyramid is not new, and their exploitation continues. But it is people in the middle who are now dropping down to the lower rungs of the income ladder. That's where the insecurity is felt, and Uh, This was true also in the period after the First World War in Europe when fascism first uh, appeared on the scene. Uh, The people who really rushed to support Mussolini and Hitler, a lot of them were members of this uh, lower middle class, if you'd like to call it, uh, who felt insecure and felt threatened, and that sort of replicates itself today in what you see in right-wing movements. A lot of the support for people like Trump and other right-wing leaders elsewhere, Italy or whether you look at Greece or Spain or Europe today, the right-wing thrives in these insecure groups who are finding that they are new to the prospect of uh, falling into the sort of ranks of the working poor. And that's where a lot of the right-wing uh, support comes from, in my view.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would agree. So so we want to get into... Um little bit more into this and into uh, you, you wanted to talk about you had a, 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 an article there that you have that talks about uh, the response to the rise in fascism in the 20s and 30s and perhaps drawing Whether parallels parallels to today but we have to take a break for sure Okay. Hi, we're the Resistas and you're listening to 88.9
1: K-P-O-V-A Hi, this is Billy Bragg, and you're listening to The Radical Songbook on 88.9 KPOV and kpov.org.
0: I'm here with Romir Chatterjee, my friend Romir Chatterjee, here on The Radical Songbook, and maybe drawing some conclusions
1: to uh, today. I think uh, from what we were talking about a little while ago about the crises that continue to plague capitalism, uh and the insecurities that people are exposed to today and the rise of inequality on a global scale as well as the national scale, I think the threat of fascism remains very real. And uh, I think it's worth, when you ask whether fascism is whether what we see today is really the same thing as fascism of the past, I think a couple of points to be made are useful. Uh, James MacDougall, who is a historian at Oxford, has written about this question of whether what we see today is or is not fascism. And he makes the point that um, people get hung up a little bit on definitions about fascism. And his point is that while history never repeats itself exactly, and while circumstances today are very different to what they were in the 30s, when fascism sort of took hold in Europe, he says that the real question is not to focus on the definitions so much as the content of what we see. And if you look at the similarities, the fascism that you see today is sort of uh, typically xenophobic it sort of tries to isolate foreign enemies who threaten national and domestic tranquility it looks at foreigners with suspicion religion has become now a focus of a lot of uh, right wing uh, dogma you saw what happened in New Zealand two weeks ago Uh, the massacre of 50 Muslims who were uh, assembled in a mosque in Christchurch, uh, that the tendency to find foreign uh, enemies who threaten domestic tranquility, that is a trend which is very universal today all over. the. You see it in this country with Trump's call for a wall and his demonizing of of immigrants, you see it in places like India, where uh, the focus there is on sort of Hindu nationalist ideology, demonizing Muslims as well, and the same thing is true in Europe today, if you look at the anti-immigrant sentiment in Europe. So this tendency to find foreign enemies that threaten domestic tranquility and the rise of sort of uh, similar slogans that were similar to what one heard in Italy and Germany in the 30s, that's where the similarities lie, that you have people... Of feeling very insecure all over the world and looking for political solutions outside of the normal established democratic institutions, turn to sort of fascistic slogans and leaders who try to promote uh, solutions that uh, rely on basically demolishing democratic institutions. And that similarity is very strong today, as, uh, it, and it's very similar to what happened in Europe in the 30s, in my mind. So uh, this threat of fascism today, I think, is very real.
0: We wanted to uh, get into a conversation um, about what to do. I guess it'd be the best way that I could uh put it. And I guess what I one thing I'd like to just mention in preface is that you you talked about the growing inequality uh since the since the 80s and and it's not that people haven't noticed that. I mean, if we recall the occupy movement from what was that 20 2012, the whole idea of the 1% and the 99%, um one could argue about why why That wasn't a sustained movement, but nonetheless, uh, even though it wasn't a sustained movement, it did kind of push forward this idea of massive, massive inequality, Mm -hmm. Uh, the 99% versus the 1% who uh, control the wealth and power in this country. Yeah, So, but it wasn't enough, so what is to be done? (laughs)
1: What is to be done? As Lenin would have Well, I think uh, just to sort of take off where we stopped last, uh, this question of uh, whether we face the threat of fascism or not. Uh, In my view, we very much still do face the threat of fascism that capitalism as a system is still very insecure, very uh, unstable, creates a lot of crises, and lots of people feel very insecure, and in fact, growing numbers of people in the last 30 or 40 years internationally are feeling more and more insecure, regardless of what the... Uh, Standard sort of ideological positions might be about whether capitalism is able to solve its internal problems or not. Certainly, people feel much more insecure today than they did 30 or 40 years ago. And so, in my view, the threat of fascism, without nitpicking about definitions, The threat of fascism as a system of uh, an anti-democratic system of government is very, uh, that relies on military and uh, violent uh, mechanisms to maintain its hold. The threat of that kind of uh, system becoming more widespread is very real, more real today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. So when we talk about what is to be done, I think what one does is very much based on what one's understanding is about what is going on in the world. And today, if you see fascism as a real threat that arises out of the fundamental flaws of capitalism as a system, that recognition should guide us, it seems to me, in what is to be done. And I think that um, while I don't think that I have fully thought through what the solutions are or what uh, appropriate defense mechanisms might exist, the one thing I do know is we can't rely on the democratic process alone. Uh, to solve our predicament, the idea that we can rely on the institutions. Let's take this country as an example. I don't think that we can rely on standard political solutions anymore as an adequate defense against the threat of fascism. What do you mean by that specifically? You mean
0: the electoral process? Yeah, the
1: electoral process is insufficient. Whether you elect a Democrat or a Republican, seems to me you still face the threat of fascism. Uh, We are at this juncture because we've relied on the Democratic two-party system. And one party today is more or less openly fascistic. The Republican Party, in my view, whether they recognize it or not, uh, has become basically captive to fascistic ideas. And on the Democratic side of the political spectrum I don't think one can rely on the Democrats to adequately confront this threat and we are where we are because they haven't been able to confront it in the past and uh, people still feel very alienated from the political system nobody trusts politicians anymore right to come up with solutions and I
0: would just add to that that also um, it's not worthwhile to um, rely on things like investigations that like what the the result of which was the Mueller report that this is not and that you know that's all that's part and parcel of this reform kind of thing that you're talking about that doesn't really
1: yeah everyone, help to help but so I many people did I mean the, so many the Mueller their, the Mueller report is a good example in fact of where uh the illusions of of the uh sort of liberal uh cis, uh the liberal uh, pr- uh factions deluded themselves into thinking that Mullah's report was going to solve the problem and that it would in fact it's compounded the problem yeah uh,
0: yeah. So, so all right. So, um, what are some of the alternatives that we should well, be looking at? Well, I think
1: at? one of the things, if you look at um, the present situation, I think the key thing is to expose right-wing ideologues wherever they exist and to... Demonstrate that the so called solutions that they offer are completely false. Uh, case in point, of course, if you look at the national level here today, Trump's solutions are never going to actually be solutions to the underlying insecurity that people feel. Uh, that's at the local level. I think it's extremely important to build, wherever we can, defenses against uh, right-wing ideology. We had an interesting case in our own town a few weeks ago when we had uh, a vacancy on the city council, and the question came up as to whether or not a young woman of color should fill a particular vacancy. And because it was an appointed position, the city council had the right to appoint someone to this position. And instead of appointing a woman who had very broad support in the community, and she was a young woman of color, they chose instead a right-wing Li- uh, Republican who had been supported by the real estate industry. The realtors, the, the builders, the realtors, and the Chamber the of Commerce. And, so. and he was able to garner enough support on the council to make sure that he got the open slot and not this other person who had very widespread community support. Now that was a struggle that While uh, we lost in that struggle, in my view, it was very important at the local level because to have someone like this young woman of color on the city council— Her
0: name's Karani Mitchell, yeah.
1: —was a very significant—would have made a very significant statement at the local level that this town— values and protects diversity at the local level above other considerations. And that whole issue, what does it have to do with fascism? Well, protecting and promoting diversity of that kind at the local level is among the strongest defenses that one can have to protect people who feel the threat of fascism today. Uh, Having representatives at the local government level who understand the insecurities that face large numbers of people in the community is very critical. And one has to fight for that and fight very hard for that. And it is through local institutions that we're ultimately going to be able to defend ourselves against right-wing dictatorial policies. And we're more likely to succeed at the local level than we are at perhaps the national level, where there's a lot more uncertainty.
0: Right, and and where we have a a lot um, more—I mean, I have long felt that— you know, I have a lot more influence on change, and uh, the and the opportunity to help create change on the local level than I do on the national level. The national level, I'm just sort of a very small player in in whatever happens. But I wanted, but so there's there's a little bit of a not not necessarily a contradiction, but so basically, what you're when you say that we can't rely on on. Well, on, on the, the, the system, the electoral system. You're not suggesting that we don't participate. We should still participate. No, of
1: course we should still participate. I think that's sort of an ultra-left position to say you just walk, walk away from right. all uh, democratic processes. Not at all. Yeah. My point is that in order to fight right-wing fascist policies, one has to find a place to begin, And one of the easiest places to begin is at the local level. Now, obviously, there are a lot of other things that one can do. Uh, One has to expose false ideas and false ideologies. And one has to educate people as to what the real nature of the problems are that we face. If one says, for example, that capitalism is at the root of the problem one has to be able to demonstrate that and educate people about that as to why you say that, why we feel that. And that's a critical issue as well, promoting a proper and a real understanding of why we feel insecure and what the sources of that insecurity are rather than fall prey to the sort of ideologues and the uh, right-wing dogma that seems to uh, captivate people when someone like Trump comes along and says, hey, I know the problem and the problem is one that I can solve because I'm a great defender of uh, working people. That is such a false position and one has to fight that and expose it and educate people.
0: Right, and it's a tall order because uh, in this day and age Trump is, is able to get away with lit- literally flat out lying, uh, making promises that everybody that, well, that anybody who's paying really close attention uh, realize are impossible and not going to happen. A good example is the whole idea that Trump Said he was going to bring back coal mining jobs in the US. I mean, I never. Well, it's a good example, right? Yeah. People bought it. People believed it. Yeah. I'll you know, and it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen. <coughs> and it's not going to happen because, and this gets us back to capitalism, it's not going to happen because. The coal operators in this country are making the decisions about this, and they are not going to be swayed by Trump. Just like when Donald Trump last week, uh, a couple weeks ago, was going after General Motors to not close the Lordstown, Ohio, uh, manufacturing plant and, cha- and then, you know, criticizing the union and stuff. The thing about that is that people have to understand that General Motors, they are not—they that will be polite— in their response to the President of the United States, but they are not taking economic direction from the President of the United States. They're gonna do That's what right. they want to do. And they're basically, you know, behind closed doors are saying, well, screw you, I'm we're gonna, you know, this is about our profits. Yeah, yeah, And so that gets us back to the whole idea of the crisis of capitalism, right?
1: Yeah, quite right. I mean, and one has to, my thought is that uh, there's a lot of uh, false hope that's promoted by a lot of different in a lot of different places, whether it's the educational system, whether it's the press, whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post. Everyone is bombarded by a lot of information and misinformation or false information. Even if it's not intentional,
0: and, and what are some of the sources that you look to? I, 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 for one, just and I've been reading the Guardian from Great Britain off and on for a long time, and now and then just recently subscribed, so I get stuff from them on a daily basis. I see that as a, um, well, I see that as better than just about anything I see in the U.S. media today.
1: Yeah, I'm not too denigrate the new york i mean i have a lot of respect for the new york times and the guardian and a lot of uh, liberals, uh traditionally liberal the liberal press the nation is another source of information for me um but even with the best of intentions uh These institutions, even the Guardian and the New York Times, are loath to suggest that capitalism is the root problem. Now, where do you get an education about that? Well, my thought is that one just has to be willing to dig deep and read and sort of try to understand what has in fact happened, and right. what is happening?
0: Right. There's a uh, um, shortly after Bernie Sanders was elected, uh, or elected shortly after Bernie Sanders. And listening was, to what, your what, show, I, I, by I, the I, way,
1: I was, huh? Listening to your show is another important <laughs> sometimes.
0: <laughs> Shortly after Bernie Sanders' campaign, of course, there was a uh, – because Bernie Sanders ran as a – openly ran as a Democratic Socialist, uh, there was an upsurge in membership in the Democratic Socialists of America organization. There was an effort to form a local chapter here in Central Oregon. It kind of – it floundered and failed, but it's been – in the last two weeks, it's been revived. And, um, I'm not participating directly in it, so I'm not speaking as a, as an endorser of what they're doing. But it's interesting what it does, what it says to me is that even, that now, even two years after that election, and we see it all the time, we saw it in the midterm elections, there is more and more of an interest amongst people in the idea of socialism and the idea of democratic socialism and social democracy and we see that in candidates that have successfully run Uh, Alejandro Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one Uh, the DSA recently elected five members of the Chicago City Council as another example Uh, and more and more young people it would seem to me are joining some of us old folks who have never been afraid of the word fasc- uh word socialism and are not af- don't seem to be afraid of the word social- socialism even though they may not totally grasp what it is they're not afraid of it which is very uh, to me that's a very encouraging thing
1: oh that's very encu- yeah i think there are a lot of encouraging signs uh, and as you say The uh, younger crop of politicians has come up that is not afraid to uh, talk about the failures of the system or how we've arrived at this present juncture and what the real threats are to our freedoms and our democratic institutions. So there are a lot of positive things going on. And I don't suggest that... uh, But the only way to sort of defend against fascism is to support these new uh, tendencies that you can see all over. Right. People fighting for the right sorts of things, trying to understand the real source of problems?
0: Right. Things like the uh, Green New Deal is just one example that, you know, there's all yes. this, all the right-wingers are saying, they're going to take away your hamburgers. They're going to take <laughs> away your cows. They're going to they're gonna force you to walk instead of, dr- I mean, you know, they're saying all this outrageous stuff. Yeah, sure. Well, it, it behooves one to um, take a closer look at what is being said and what isn't being said, and to recognize that these are just ideas that nothing has been, debated in congress yet to to the extent that it should be and you know we haven't we haven't seen what's going to emerge out of all of this stuff but but it but there it's a positive development anything else do you want to say uh kind of wrapping things up before we conclude with some music
1: i think that uh we've covered a lot of turf and i think we did uh We still have a lot of things to talk about, and we'll probably get to them at some other point in time. Exactly, we will. We did a good, we had an interesting chat today.
0: We will indeed. We will get back to, I will definitely have you on, uh, on the show again and uh, Romir Chatterjee, my good friend, political economist who lives here in Bend, and we'll be talking more and more about these issues. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.